in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. You could scan uh, the QR code to get a worship guide, or the words will be on the screen. John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. God's word says this, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked John, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. You may be seated. Before going further, let me pray. Lord, your word is opened. This is not my word, but your word. Your word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And your word is able to change lives. And so, Lord God, I pray that as we walk through the truth of your word, do something in our hearts and souls. Most of all, I pray that we would be obedient. That's the word I want to highlight today, obedient to what your word says. In Christ's name, amen. All of us know that there is a military base in Fort Bragg, and something not long ago happened at Fort Bragg that was amazing. It seemed to be a clerical error that sent a message to a guy who was nothing but a supply clerk. He worked for the 82nd Airborne Division, and a message came to him to prepare to jump out of the airplane. This is your job. You got to jump. But he wasn't trained to jump, but he's in the military. He's in the military. So this man's mother, his name was Jeff Lewis, only 23 years old. And you know what? He did what he was ordered to do. Never trained. He jumped. And you know what? He landed safely. Never did it before. Never trained to jump, and he landed safely. Why would a supply clerk do this? Because his job was simply to receive equipment and to get equipment to where it needed to be. This is his job. But he got orders to jump out of an airplane. He said this. The Army said I was airborne qualified. I wasn't going to question it. Here was a man who signed up to serve, and he was going to do it faithfully. This has me thinking about us as believers. We say we are Christ followers, but are we as faithful as this supply clerk to do something that he wasn't even trained to do but he did it because his, the people above him said, you're going to do it. 
But for us as Christians, are we that obedient? Or do we put asterisks by our obedience? I will obey as long as fill in the blank. Paul says this, look at it with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Notice those words, pleasing the one who enlisted him, pleasing the Lord. Don't raise your hands, but I want to ask each of you, how many of you want to please the Lord? Now, I'm not saying please him to earn anything, because if you're in Christ Jesus, you don't work to earn anything, but because you're already in Christ, do you feel a joy and a freedom to now obey him as a good soldier in Christ Jesus? My question for you and I is, are we willing to engage in the Lord's work no matter what? Are we willing to engage in this work no matter what? Are we willing to go where he tells us to go? I don't know if you guys ever, ever felt this, but have you ever been someplace and the Holy Spirit gave you a holy nudge? And you see someone you've been in a conversation with, you don't know them, but you sense God saying to you, share your faith with that person. And you refuse to do it. Am I the only one? Now, I know, I know we're good reformed Christians. We don't believe in hearing the voice of God. We don't say those words, but could the Holy Spirit still be at work moving us and nudging us to go and share our faith with those who are lost? Could he do that? And many of us, and Mo Russell, have oft, have, I've often been disobedient to what I know in my heart because the Spirit lives in me he is not a dead God who lives in me. He is alive and active in me, and I sense him moving in my life, and yet I'm too afraid, or I just will not open my mouth. And what, if, what would happen if the person that I refuse to share my faith with dies because of my disobedience? Today we're going to look more closely at John the Baptist. We learned last week that this was a man commissioned by God to witness to the word who is the Lord Jesus Christ. John didn't come trying to build himself a platform or to amass a gathering or a group of people to say, I'm following him. He pointed away from himself to one who was greater than he was because he was a witness to the Lord Jesus. You see, for John and us, our witness must point to Jesus, not us. I'm talking to us now because even as a church, typically we would point people to who we are as a church. Come here because we have everything you need. But instead of saying come to reconciliation, we want to say come and see about Jesus. Come and hear about him. If reconciliation is that place, praise God. But if there is another place that you would want to go that may be closer to where you live or that you feel that it's a good place for you to be as long as you're going to hear about Jesus. Go. Our witness is about 
Jesus. It's not about us. Because if all of us who are sitting here, we look at our lives, we are who we are because of the Lord Jesus. All of us in the faith, whether it was your family member or whether it was a friend, think about the faithfulness of the person who opened their mouths to point you to Jesus, however many years ago that was. Someone was faithful to open their mouths, and God, by his spirit, through that vessel, opened your eyes to see. As the blind man in John chapter 9, he says, I don't know how I got my sight, but what I can tell you, once I was blind, but now I see. We all stand here before God justified because of the work of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. But what does justification mean? Again, I know I use some words sometime and I just kind of run past it, but I don't want to run past this. Assuming that we all know what it means to be justified or we know the meaning of justification. Look at this definition with me. Justification is a judicial act of God pardoning sinners, accepting them as just, and permanently putting there, putting right their previously estranged relationship with himself. It is God's gift of righteousness, justified. Right now, friends, you and I are before God standing positionally as justified. Positionally, I'm accepted. No matter how raggedy I am or how much I mess up today or this week, positionally, I am a son. As a lady, you are his daughter right now, accepted in his family. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as we examine John more closely this morning. Looking at these verses, I want us to notice two things. First, in verses 19 to 22, John says, not me. Not me. And then in verses 23 to 28, he says, but him. Notice John here now. This is, I think this is important and beefy for us in our day. We would do the other way. We would make it the other way. <laughs> but me. Not him. Oh, all right, I'm the only one that believes that. I'm sorry. Come here. But me, not him. John says, not me, but him. So John points away from him, himself and says, first, not me, verses 19 to 22, our first point. In our text, we are given the testimony of John. And it begins by informing us that there were some Jewish authorities who sent a delegation to John the Baptist to question John. And when they arrived to John, they asked him, who are you? Verse 19. Who are you? Sitting there wondering and thinking, like, what was John doing there? We read other Gospels, we know that he is at the Jordan River baptizing, but there was a great following that come. But in other words, there, there, there was some buzz around John. He is preaching in a way that's capturing people's attention. So now a delegation comes to John the Baptist and they say, who are you? This is a scene of a lawsuit. This is formal questioning. And so John's witness to, the, uh, to Jesus was so strong 
that priests and Levites, those who were, were, were handling things in the temple with worship, they come to John. They were concerned about his work, but why were they? To understand the cultural times that John was in, this was a time that was highly charged and tense, religiously and politically. Now, again, I've said this before, but we have to understand that as John is in at the Jordan River, there would have probably been Romans all around them. They were under Roman rule. It's tense politically. It's also tense religiously. Because false messiahs would often show up coming, especially around time of Passover, saying to Jews that I'm the one who's going to deliver you. So all these false messiahs would show up and the Romans would squelch that uprising. So this false messiah now dies. And, but there will be other men who will come in and say, I'm the one who's going to deliver you. So this is the climate in which John is doing work. So now these priests and Levites, they come to John and say, who are you? Who are you? As we're going to see in this gospel in a few verses that the Pharisees were a part of this group. But not only the Pharisees and what they believed, but even the disciples, all of the people of Israel, they had expectations that did not match God's work. Aren't we the same? That we impose our expectations on God and what he should do? God, I think you should do it this way, my way. And, and we impose these expectations, but the issue is we can't see from God's point of view. I heard someone say this, and I, I, I said, they said this before, and I love it. They said, if we had God's point of view and could see what he sees, when we pray, we would answer our prayers the same way God does answer our prayers. Because we know then, if we could see it, that all things are going to work out. But in our space, we don't know that those things are going to work out. But we have to trust by faith that they are. That's why we need God's point of view, his perspective. The Pharisees did not have God's perspective. Even the disciples struggled to see God's perspective. This is why they couldn't understand that Jesus had to die. Our Messiah is not going to die. That's not what I read in the word. By the way, this is a sidebar. You know, we eisegete, that's another theological term, we eisegete the Bible all the time. That just means we impose our meaning on what the text says. That's not what my Bible says. I'm not reading that. And, and, and obviously we're doing this in isolation too, so we are reading it by ourselves. But we're not in a group where we are wrestling and studying the, the text. So we just say, that's not what my Bible says. And so now everybody has their own theology that they just create, right? But none of that has anything to do with what God has said in his word. The Pharisees and the disciples, they did not have a paradigm for this type of Messiah and this Messiah coming to die. If we could see from God's perspective... We would welcome his work in our lives because then we would know that Rome, what Romans 8.28 says, look at it with me. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to this purpose, all things work together for good. So someone said to me this week, 
what things are bad things for the believer if all things work together for good? Is everything ultimately good if God is working things out according to his purposes? Again, I'm not saying that tough stuff doesn't happen. That's not what I'm saying. But if we can see from God's perspective, then, and my wife and I are living this out right now in our own home with all of the stuff that's happening, we have to see all of this stuff, this inconvenience, as being ultimately either from God's hand or him allowing it, but all of it is going to work together for good according to his purpose. So these delegates, they wanted to know the mission and purpose of John. So they asked John, who are you? They emph- John emphatically says, I am not the Christ. And I wish I could say it in the Greek, but this is emphasis. Like he's screaming, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. He's not the Christ, but he came to bear witness to the Christ. He came to point to another. See, John was a true evangelist. I know some of us, we, we, we may not like that word, or we won't say, God didn't give me the gift of evangelism. Hmm? Are you a Christian? I'm wondering, like, again, I hear it. Are, are you a Christian? Like, God didn't call me to preach. I know you might not get up on a Sunday. You might not stand before people. But if you are in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you are anointed to share the word. John was a true evangelist. A man by the name of David Bebbington, he has a quadrilateral for evangelism. I want to share this with you. I want you to look at it with me. First of all, the evangelist must be committed to teaching the Bible. This is biblicism. Biblicism. Committed to teaching the Bible. Secondly, the evangelist must be cross-centered. This is crucicentrism, right? So when we share our faith, Not only are we teaching the Bible, but the cross must be at the center of what we're sharing. I don't care if I'm preaching out of Genesis. I'm going to get to the cross. I'm going to be in Leviticus. I'm going to get to the cross. I'm going to be in the Song of Solomon. I'm going to get to the cross. I'm going to be in Esther. I'm going to get to the cross. The cross is central for the evangelist. Thirdly, the evangelist must be concerned about conversions, conversionism. Friends, there are lost people out here. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We just don't blanketly, you know, we we share our faith, but we want people to make a decision. Will you trust him today? Conversions. And finally, the evangelist must get to work to advance the cause of Christ. This is activism. This activism is not a politically charged word, y'all. I'm not using it that way. We got to get to work where we are, where we live. And John the Baptist embodied all of these. Biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism. So after John said, I am not the Christ, then they asked him, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Uh, This points to what the prophet Malachi said in Malachi chapter 4. Verses 5 to 6, where he says, behold, God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
John says to them, I am not Elijah. Then they asked him if he was the prophet. The prophet. This points again to what God said in his word in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. Look at it with me. God's word says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Moses is speaking from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. When you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire, see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. John again said, I am not the prophet. I'm not the prophet like Moses. But these men who came to John, they needed an answer to take back to those who sent them. He need, they needed an answer. So they wanted to know what John thought of himself. Who are you? What do you say of yourself? Are you Elijah? Are you, are you the prophet? See, we stated last week that we enjoy it when others make much of us. We enjoy it when they big us up. Like, uh, just to confess you guys, like I, when I used to play sports, I used to want to see the news to see if they were going to show me. Or I would go get what's called a stat sheet after the game to see what I did because it wasn't about the team for me. It was about me. It was about me. Again, that was just me with sports. But I know all of us can look at our hearts that we have something in us that puts ourselves on that throne. It becomes about us. Our egos can be inflated. But John, John even had disciples. But John was so beefy, John told even his disciples when Jesus came on the scene, y'all need to go follow him. It's not me. You need to go follow him. And I believe that John lived out what Psalm 115 and 1 says, where the psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. So John starts by saying, not me. But he ends by saying, but him. Not me, but him. This is our last point. See, John knew who he was. Mm. As I say that, I'm thinking about how much of us have an identity crisis. Where we allow the imposition of culture to tell us who we are. But John knew who he was. Because God had poured into him. As a matter of fact, when you read the story in Luke, when Elizabeth was pregnant with him, the Bible lets us know that he was filled with the spirit even in the womb. That when Jesus showed up, he jumped, right? He, he, he jumped. John knew who he was. He didn't have an identity crisis. And he shared with them that he was no more than a voice. This is what I love. He says, it's not me. I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. When he said this, he quoted the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Look at it with me where he says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is another thing about John. He knew the book. I, I, I can sit here all day because I feel like we, and I'm going to use this word loosely, but often I think that even in the church there is some biblical, biblical illiteracy. Like we don't know what the word says because we don't spend time in the word. We don't, we don't study it. We don't dig into it, spend time with it because maybe I'm too busy. Maybe all of this stuff is taking place in my life. But John knew the book. He knew in Isaiah what it said in Isaiah. We call it Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. He says that applies to me. I'm the one. Because he saw himself as a tool preparing the way for the coming kingdom. His cry at the Jordan River was a cry of penitence and conversion. His role and responsibility was vital. It was vital for without this voice crying in the wilderness, the coming one could not be received. This is why it's important for us to share our faith, y'all. This is why it's important for us to open our mouths, mouth to ear. Because if we don't open our mouths, people will not be saved. If we don't open our mouths, yes, God could just snap his fingers and everyone that he wants would be saved. But he chooses to use us. He chooses to use us. He doesn't need us, but he chooses. And this way it gets to that obedience part for us. See, how will someone come to know Jesus unless we tell him? So again, I ask, are we willing to go? And when we share with people, we must never underestimate the power of our testimony. How many of you have a testimony? Now, I'm going, in, I'm going in my cultural bag now. I've been a part of some testimony services, right? Some of that stuff go too long, right? Then you hear too much information sometimes. But all of us have, if you've been rescued, all of you have a testimony that someone needs to hear, whether in your family or outside of your family. We all have a story. Never underestimate the power of your testimony. See, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been demon-possessed. After healing him, see, this was the man that, was, that was, was, was living in among the tombs, cutting himself. They put chains on him, but you couldn't hold him because the demons within him were so strong that he would break those chains. The Bible says that Jesus, when, that, when that, this man saw Jesus, the demons started crying out, leave us alone. Jesus heals this man. Since the demons, this is a whole different teaching, but since the demons into some pigs that drowned, the Bible says then that man was made right. He was made whole and in his right mind. He had been changed so dramatically by Jesus that this man, who was a Gentile, that's the other thing we need to know because he's in an area called the Decapolis. He's a Gentile and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus says, no. Hmm. You can't come be my disciple. But then he says this, go home, tell your people. This is what the text says in Mark chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. It says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone 
marvel. Now, why is this important? What was the, what was the result of his proclaiming or him testifying to his people? If you go to Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 8, the Bible says that there were 4,000 men who were before Jesus. Where were they from? The Decapolis. Could it be that Jesus had about 10,000 people there? Because they said men, but what if a man had a wife and at least one child? So you can add that up. But these, this group was there because this once demon-possessed man went home and started telling everybody. I wonder, because of our inability or unwillingness to open our mouths, this is why there are so many lost people. I'm not talking about our church is growing. I'm talking about just people being lost, people being discipled, because we won't open our mouths. I believe the Lord could use us the same way. Yesterday, my wife and I, we, didn't, we, we, we were with a gentleman who was from Cuba. And he just asked me a question what I do. He alley-ooped me. And I can't jump over a sheet of paper. And immediately, I'm just going, I'm just starting to talk what our responsibilities are. And he's just engaging, talking in his accent. But it was so powerful. And he was like, I'm coming, Pastor. But it wasn't about him coming to church. I was just sitting there thinking about, okay, God, you orchestrated this meeting pointing to Jesus. I don't know where he is because he was talking about like he has to work for like God's approval. And I'm trying to say, no, I, I didn't say it explicitly, but I just looked at an opportunity, even though my presentation may not have been the best. But it, I just refused to engage him and say, uh, I just do work and not even engage him. I believe that all of us have those opportunities. We have all those opportunities where we're talking with people and we have an opportunity to point to the Lord Jesus. This demon-possessed man went home, changed, and he couldn't hold it in. I believe it was like the story where Jeremiah says, I, God, I don't want to talk about you no more. But then Jeremiah says, but I couldn't stop talking because it was like fire shut up in my bones. But then the text now, as we come to a close, we are told that those sent to John came from the Pharisees. Now, I want to run through this quick, but who were the Pharisees? Because the Bible, oftentimes in the New Testament, they're presented in a negative light. But they have a history that goes back to a time between Malachi and Matthew during the time of these people called the Maccabees. So the Maccabees, it was a revolt. Like, um, there was this guy by the name of Antiochus. Antiochus is that how I'm saying it right? Yeah, Antiochus Epiphanes who tried to turn the Jewish faith into a Greek faith. So now these Jews are like, no, you're not going to make us Greek. And so there was an uprising, a revolt, where they stopped this from happening. Uh, historians let us know that Pharisees goes back to that time where there were a group of men who were committed to the truth of Scripture. They, they wanted to hold on to what the Bible says. They had become so influential that they would even influenced the teaching of many synagogues. So that when John was asked who he was, they came because they had this authority. They wanted to know, what are you teaching? What are you doing? That's why they came to Jesus asking them about what he was doing. But they were, what are you doing? Who are you? Why are you baptizing? This is the first time in John that baptizing is mentioned. 
He says, they say, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? But what is baptism? Now, I know in our section, boy, we fight over baptism. What is the mode? When do you do it? Who gets it done? But here in John, baptism was an act of conversion. It goes back to the Old Testament with Old Testament ceremonial washings. And these washings in the Old Testament removed uh, various kinds of impurities. It was primarily for Gentiles. So when a Gentile said, I want to follow the Jewish faith, that Gentile male had to be circumcised and they had to be baptized by immersion. Now I'm saying that in the PCA church, they were immersed, right? They had to go into water and come out of water. But it was for Gentiles to go from their pagan faith to this Jewish faith, to Judaism. It was an act of turning from the old to the new. Now, because John is saying to Jews, you must be baptized, what is he doing? He is saying that you Jews must be baptized like Gentiles. And this was like, now, hold up, I'm not a Gentile. I don't have to be, John says, you need to be baptized too because you need to get ready for this coming king. So he closes by saying to them in verses 26 to 27, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These men didn't know the coming one. They didn't know this Messiah. They didn't have spiritual understanding. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do the menial work of a slave because to, to carry a person's shoes and in their culture, feet, dusty feet, they walked in with, with open-toed sandals and their feet stayed dirty. Slaves would carry sandals. John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He didn't have an identity crisis. We often have identity crisis. We don't do the menial. I got too many degrees to sweep floors. I digress. John says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And our text ends by saying, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is why this verse is important, because this scripture lets us know that this happened in real time on earth. The Bible is not some fairy tale. This was a place on earth where this was taking place. As a matter of fact, the area where he was baptizing, historians let us know, Josephus lets us know, this is where Herod Antipas was, was doing his work, and this is where he ultimately got beheaded in this, in this particular area. So this happened in real time in history. On earth as it is in heaven, and John's ministry was never about him. It was about the one who was coming. He was obedient. Sports. Sports is a game. Any sport is a game that's played from the coach's perspective. Now, I know some of you don't play sports. You've never played it, but I, I'm, we, we're going we're gonna to learn something right here. Sports is played not from the player's perspective, it's played from the coach's perspective. Some of you may remember the baseball player Reggie Jackson, Mr. October. Reggie Jackson is one of the greatest baseball players to live. But Reggie Jackson was a funny character. So towards the end of his career, he's playing in a game and he makes contact and he gets on base. The coach then tells him, Reggie, do not steal second base. 
Stay on first base. Don't try to steal second base. But this is Reggie Jackson. He's going to do what he wants to do. So what did Reggie Jackson do? He stole second base. The coach is now pulling his hair out. Why did he do that? The coach told him not to do that because the man coming behind him had the hottest bat in the whole series. He had been hitting home runs. He had been driving runs in. And the coach says, stay where you are because when this guy comes up, the way he's been playing, he's going to knock you in and a whole bunch of other people in. Just stay where you are. We need him to come up and bat. But because Reggie stole second base, the pitcher didn't have to pitch to this guy. So he intentionally walked him. He didn't give him a chance to hit. So now this guy, this guy goes to first base because he was walked. He never got a chance to swing. Then another guy comes up to bat. He wasn't hitting too well, and he made contact, and everybody gets out. All because Reggie wanted to do his own thing. He didn't want to obey the coach. Again, sports is played from the coach's perspective. Likewise, our lives are lived from God's perspective. Does God often tell us, don't do something? We're going to do it anyway. And then the what ifs of life started happening. Like, if I had just stayed there, then maybe. Have you ever played that game in your head? God, if I had just not dropped out of school, if I had just whatever, we play that game. But often it's because of disobedience. But now in Christ, do we just obey what God says in his word? We know that how life is going to play out. We don't worry about the results of our obedience. That's God's, that's God's choice. That's God's job. What the result of our obedience will be. We just trust him. But our issue, we don't trust. I don't want to put that on you. Let me talk to myself. Russell, it's because you don't trust. You don't trust and so I try to rig my life in a way that if God doesn't come through here, I got this, this ace in a hole. I'm going to rig my life. I don't want to obey, or I will only obey if I can see the end result of my obedience. Our job is to just be obedient. Friends, truly, we are God's strategy on earth. We are God's strategy. He wants to use us. All we have to do is obey. So the question is, are we willing to be obedient no matter the cost? If we know about, if you know the story of John the Baptist, and we'll get here, John was beheaded. He lost his life. But he stayed obedient to what God had called him to. So are we willing to be obedient no matter the cost? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the witness of John the Baptist. I thank you that he lived his life from your perspective, from your perspective, and he was willing to stand at the Jordan, and, and as other gospel writers lets us know, he, be, he was willing to speak to power, to condemn power for their lives, the lives they live in, and calling them to repentance. John was a witness, a true witness to the Lord Jesus. And we today, we could be that witness we are called to be.
commanded to be that witness to the Lord Jesus. But right now, Lord, we are coming to the table to partake of communion, which is a witness, a continued witness to who you are, Lord Jesus. And so I pray that you will prepare our minds and hearts as we prepare to receive the elements. I do ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.